Welcome to the Self-Publishing School Podcast. This is the podcast to listen to if you're an aspiring writer or an author who wants to be more successful. On this show, you'll learn how to write and launch a book successfully, all from the top authors and people just like you who are doing it at the highest level. I'm your host, Chandler Volt, the founder of Self-Publishing School, the author of the book called Published, and the CEO of selfpublishing.com. For free training on how to publish a book that sells 10,000 copies, go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. Hey, Chandler Bolt here, and joining me today is Phil M. Jones. Uh, Phil is a keynote speaker, a sales savant, my words, not his, uh, and uh, the author of multiple books, including his international bestseller, Exactly What to Say. Uh, he sold over 750,000 copies of his books uh, and helped thousands make conversations count through his books, speeches, trainings. He's done over 2,500 speeches. Um, the guy's uh, super, super talented. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, how, how to use sales skills to sell more books. We're going to talk about, he's got experience uh, doing hybrid publishing, doing self-publishing, doing traditional publishing. So we're going to talk about kind of pros and cons of each. Uh, and then also uh, how he sold over 750,000 uh, copies of his book. So I'm super excited for this. Phil, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. So for starters, I mean, you've got a bunch of books now. It seems like books are at the core of your speaking business and at the core of your business as a whole. Why books? Why, why is it something that you prioritize and kind of put at the center of what you do? Um, I wouldn't even say they're the center of what I do. Is They're the sprinkles on the top of what I do that allow me to do more of what I do. Interesting. So I, I, I'm a speaker that writes or a trainer that writes more so than a, a writer that speaks. And what my books have allowed me to be able to do is to develop authority into you know wider angles because the quantity of different books and publications I've had create thought leadership. And what they've also been is, is tip of arrow to pierce into new markets because of the specificity that exists in some of my titles too. So I enjoy books because it turns a thing that's not into a thing into a thing. Yeah. And when we live in this informational age where, um, you know, there's opinions everywhere, there is content galore that is available in every, every possible medium that somebody could look to be able to find it in, a, a crystallized moment in time is a book. Like it existed on that mm. day. It was real. You can date stamp it as you were there first. There is less of this plagiarism of ideas based on timeline. And it takes something that otherwise people aren't prepared to pay for and turns it into something that everybody's prepared to pay for with the other plus point of, well, you become micro famous from it. That's great. And I always call book a silent salesman, which kind of aligns with, I think what you're saying is it's the tip of a spear to go into a marketplace and, uh, and teach a methodology or an ideology I want to get into, you know, you self-publish, you've hybrid published, you've traditionally published, um, and, and exactly what to say is kind of a hybrid published book. Yeah. And you, you, we were talking about this before the interview, you retain all the rights. So how yeah. do you decide, I mean, with all these books, how do you decide when to self-publish, when to hybrid publish, when to traditionally publish? Um, I wouldn't even go as far to say as I decided um some stuff is what choice do you make at the time that you're making it as opposed to it being hugely pre-calculated 
So my first book, a book called Toolbox, I self-published because I didn't have any other options. I didn't know there were any other options. I didn't even know at the time that you could self-publish until you could self-publish. So I self-published. And, and I think there is an important part in everybody's life that before you can expect somebody else to back you, that you should back yourself. And everybody has to go through a period of self-publishing, whether that's a self-published book or a self-published blog or a self-published Instagram account or a self-published LinkedIn profile. In some way, shape or form is you have to prove that you've not only got the chops to be able to make something make sense on paper, but somebody wants to read it. So, so one way or another, you've got to back yourself first, but then steps in the, how do I want to commercialize this? And that's where you start to get more strategic. So if I tell the story about exactly what to say and how that came to life is I first wrote a book called Magic Words. That was a self-published book. That was my second book. And that came to light because back in around 2008, 2009, I was in a mastermind group with some other speakers and we were talking about books and publishing and how you needed to get a publisher and an agent and all that kind of stuff. And me and my big mouth said, you don't have to do all that anymore. There's tools like, like Lulu, I think was the one I was promoting at the time or sharing with people at the time. You could turn a book around in like seven, 10 days. There's people on Fiverr that will do a cover for you and like sharing that in 2009. And they said, really? I said, yeah, I could do a book in seven days. And then I got caught by them calling me out on it. So I took the challenge. And what I did is I took some material from a training workshop I delivered previously that was 17 sequences of magic words to help non-salespeople sell more effectively. And I took what was a two-page PDF and I blew it up into a book and I put a cover on it and a foreword and a closing statement on it. And seven days later, we put it out into the world, launched it on Lulu, put it out on KDP and did a free promotion on it on KDP Select when you could back then. And like three weeks in, we had 120,000 downloads for free. Wow. And this and was exactly what words. to say, or this was a different oh, This was Magic Words. Got it. And Magic Words was, was not a book. It was a pamphlet in a book cover. Mm. Um, and then I used that as an ebook giveaway. And then I used it to be able to support workshops and trainings. And it existed and it was well-reviewed. And people knew me for Magic Words from speeches and trainings, etc. And then when I decided that I was moving geographically, my primary base from the UK to the US... I thought I need to do a book. And then instead of me thinking that I need to do a new book full of new ideas, I thought, well, why don't I just write the book I should have wrote? And I took magic words. It was already a runaway success and a proven concept. And I took what really was a book proposal, which was what magic words was, but it was a book. Um, and I wrote the real book, which was what exactly what to say is. And the reason exactly what to say became exactly what to say and wasn't called magic words is because when I went to just relabel it rep magic words, there was already a book in the US called magic words by a guy called Tim David. And he's a real magician. So I thought, well, I'm not going to try and claim that name or that uh, that space as mine. So we retitled to exactly what to say mid process. And I didn't want to sell what I knew was one of my greatest hits to uh, a traditional publisher and pick up an advance. And I'm pretty glad I didn't. Um, I wanted to own it, but I did want the benefits of attached to working with a publishing partner that could help me navigate the distribution space that could give me access to you know, quality editors that could help me with pagination that could ensure that I could still do things like Hudson placements and get mm. some international reach and things yeah. like that too. So the hybrid model was my favorite and I, and I just backed myself again. I wrote 
you know, some five figure checks out to people. And, and I put my trust in myself in them to produce a book that was, was professional enough to meet what I was trying to do with the brand. And, and we bought that to market in 2017. And we're now pushing a million copies around the world, 29 different languages. And that book alone has generated me personal wealth in excess of a million dollars. That's amazing. That's I got so many follow-up questions. <laughs> so, uh, so you said you said you didn't want to kind of give away the proven winner to a publisher. Yeah. Why? And then you also said, "I'm glad I did it." So, why at the time was that something that you consciously said, "Hey, I don't want to do that"? And then why now are you glad that you did it? Um, well, I'm glad I went hybrid because. I have a genuine partnership, like a genuine one. It's here we are four years past launch and I can still text them at page two and have a meaningful conversation about what are we doing next? How do we make this keep running? What is version 2.0? Or even how do we use that success story to be able to further their business or further mine? It's like a, like a legit real partnership. I'm glad I did that. My fear of, of any form of rights and IP deal particularly in our space when we are experts and thought leaders and know a lot about a lot, you take what is your best of work, your signature moves, your like time-tested methodology, the thing you've poured your life and soul into and turn it into a commodity on somebody else's shelf. Now, there would be a time that I would do this differently from a traditional publisher's point of view. And I think it would be that when they write a checkout that is so big that it's a liability. I think my dad said this to me once is like, you know, if you owe the bank like $50,000, then, uh, then that's your problem. If you owe the bank $50 million, then that's their problem. Right. Uh, interesting. And it's that what is the size of investment that they are making in you? If you take yeah. a $20,000 advance from a book point of view, then this is on you to make it successful. And if it is successful, you don't become successful. If you take a six-figure advance or a, you know, a, a seven-figure advance and you get to those kind of levels, well, now all of a sudden, you might have some different levels of partnership. But what I love about the fact that I own all of my IP into my book, exactly what to say, is how I can be creative in its distribution. Quite simply, I can afford to give it away if I want to. Yeah. Whereas if I take my traditionally published books, I can't buy them myself for much cheaper than an average consumer can buy one copy, even if I'm buying 500. Therefore, I can't really afford to make marketing decisions on it where the book is an asset that I gift. I, I just can't. Yes. My hands are tied. Yes. Therefore, I feel like it's not my book. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's not Releasing my book. a book that the publisher owns. Yeah. Correct. Um, yeah. And there's times that that's the right thing to be able to do too. Like it's not one's yeah. right or one's wrong. Yeah. It's what is your book intended to do? And I would tread very, very, very carefully. If you are packaging some of your legacy work into the format of a book, and then you're going to remove your freedom and flexibility with that asset um, to use as you see fit over the next decade. And so let's unpack that just a little bit, because there's a lot of other questions I want to ask, but I think this will be really helpful for folks. How does that work? So you own all the IP, uh, and, but you're working with a hybrid publisher to yep. expand your distribution. Like, what are the mechanics yep. of that? Like, how do you make money? How do they make money? What does that look like? 
Um, they make money simply in the fact that they take a percentage of revenue back through my trade distribution. Got it. So when PGW, who uh, hold fulfillment for the likes of Amazon, make an order of 6,000 copies of the book, that order comes in, the handling costs come out, then my hybrid publisher takes a skim out of my royalty. Got it. So that part is their primary revenue source. They have other ancillary add-ons, fee-for-service, et cetera, that is beneficial at their end. But my Kindle revenues, my print-on-demand revenues, my translation rights are 80% mine, 20% theirs. Like, like, like the lion's share of, of revenue comes in through me. But what I have is I have access to partners that I would have never had if I was out there all on mm. my own. Got it. So they get a direct... That they get a direct cut of all book sales, but more weighted. Sales. Got it. Not all book so, sales. So which sales uh, are only off my, limits? Only my trade. Only my trade distribution. So Got my it. bulk sales are all mine. Yep. I print, you know, twenty thousand copies of the book, and I hold them in a warehouse. And when I sell yep. those, those are mine. And I pay the Got printer it. direct, and I pay the storage fees direct. Got it. And so, um, so, and can you define trade sales for people? Is that when is that when someone's buying through Amazon or buying through Hudson Bookstores everybody, or like kind of traditional? Everybody from Amazon through to every other bookstore that exists on the planet in some way comes through trade, where there is a distribution handler that holds stock and then fulfills that all out to those other areas. And even if it was Little Jimmy's bookstore that doesn't stock your book that through the ISBN then draws it down, that'll come out a trade distribution somewhere. And if I look at my trade distribution royalty, I see Amazon, I see like five, six other people that then play a 10th of Amazon. And then I see a hundred people that are like one unit and a quarter and, and things like that. So it. it's, it's, it's everything comes through that channel. Um, but my digital sales are mine. My audible royalties are mine. My bulk is mine. My custom editions is all mine. My international translations, my licensing deals that come, my video books that I'm now negotiating are all mine. Mm. And that's all 100% you? Yes. Got it. Cool. Okay, this is great. And I don't mean to bog down here, but I think this is just like really helpful for people on the hybrid publishing side of things. One, one last question specific to hybrid publishing. How did you decide... I mean, there's a lot of hybrid publishers. I think it's just, it's a, it's kind of, in my opinion, the wild west, like it can just yeah. really run the gamut. Either you're paying a ton of money up front and they're taking no royalty or you're paying a little bit or, and, and they're taking a big, like, it seems like you have a pretty solid deal. There's the fee for service and there's a yeah. minority component based on value added. How did you find them? How did you decide? I think there's two parts of this is, is it's not hard to create a short list. It's a pretty transparent space. There's some proven track records. You can actually physically buy a copy of the work of somebody you're thinking of working with. You can speak to those authors. You can reach out to people that they've worked with in the past. Like, like it's not hard to get trusted reputation based on proven track record in this space. So you can do some due diligence to get to a shortlist. What I then did with my shortlist is I really wanted to look for people who took a long-term view. So anybody that was in that space that we can get you straight to bestseller or the, the anybody that was, was making promises that were short-sighted that I felt were 12 weeks long, they started to move towards the no list. And, and, and you know, I, I'm looking at my books as being a 20-year business plan. So I want somebody who I feel is going to be committed to this to a long-term journey too. And that came through due diligence, through discussion, 
But the one kicker for me is the publishing partner that I choose to work with for exactly what to say had done or was in the process of doing exactly what I wanted to do with a guy called Michael Bungaistania who, uh, who wrote The Coaching Habit. So um, quick conversation with MBS, conversation with this particular partner, um, and I felt like we we're on the same page. And what I, what I also felt was true just on that human element of, of getting into this is I could push back. Like I, I come from a sales and marketing background. I don't need people from a publishing background <laughs> to tell me how to sell and market, yeah, how to sell and market yeah, books, yeah, right? It, is, the, sure. is that there was acceptance of who knows what and how can we get scrappy in the part in the middle to be able to make a success of this and the success felt shared. And, and that, that was what I was looking for in a partner was that we could deal with the messy middle together without ego mm. and accept yeah. the imperfections that would come through that process. Um, whereas many others are like book factories. It's like, this is what you're going to do. And then once it's out in the world, it's like, good, good luck, my friend. Um, this felt different from the get go. And, and I needed that. Hey, Chandler Bolt here. I hope you're loving this episode so far. It's time to go from inspiration to implementation. All right. So if you've learned something, we want to help you implement what you've learned with your book. So what I want you to do right now is go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a publishing consultation with one of the experts on my team. We'll talk about your goals for your book, your dreams, your challenges, your next steps, and we'll start putting together a plan. All right, so go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a call with the team. Let's see how we can help with your book. It's time to implement. Uh, so, so, um, I want to kind of back up just a little bit. So it started as a pamphlet that you wrote in seven days, magic words. You said, Hey, I need to, now I need to write a book. I'm, you know, moving stateside. I need this to be like kind of a, a calling card yeah. for, for my business. You, you wrote the book, you hybrid published, then fast forward. Okay. You know, 750,000 copies sold. Oh, you said approaching a million copies sold. How did you do it? Like once you, once you published it, what were the things that sold the most copies of the book? I get asked this question a lot, a lot, and mostly how you do it is one book at a time. And I think people forget that, right? They, they think just all of a sudden that you, you hit this crest of the wave and that like, you, you did this one thing that resulted in a million copies being sold. It hasn't been that for me, for sure. Um, what's also interesting is year two outsold year one which is very unusual. Yeah. And we're in year four and we're tracking flat with year three. And this is what I wanted. My, my, my goal was to create a, you know, like an evergreen bestseller that would, like if it was the top 40 charts, if it was the music business, I want to be number 41 and I want to be there forever. Like that, that, that was the route that I was going for with this book. And, and there's only one thing that sells books. Like that really sells books. Forget launch strategies and bonuses and things to get it out into the world. There's one thing that sells books and the things that sells books is somebody reading your book. And then before they finish their day, telling somebody else that they should read it too. That is it. Somebody reading your book and then before they finish their day, telling somebody else they should read that book too. And you think about the books that you've read. 
not many came from you browsing Amazon aimlessly to try and find something worthy of reading or you walking through a bookstore. Most books that, particularly in the personal development or business space, come from somebody you respect saying you should read this book. So all of your marketing efforts should be based on getting people to say you should read this book. But it also means you should write a book that results in people reading it. And given that many books don't get read, you're not going to create the outcome of, I just read this, you should read it too. And that's why most books don't hit momentum past their first 12 weeks of launch, because they don't get read. So counterintuitively, exactly what to say is shorter than almost every other business book on the planet. It is also the most listened to audio book of 2018. The most listened to. Not the most sold, the most listened to which is an interesting stat in my mind as well, is like people have reread this on audiobook on multiple occasions. So a thought I would have for many authors is just form, follow, function. Like, what do you want somebody to do with this book? Not store it on a bookshelf. What do you want them to do with it? Do you want it to sit on their desk? Do you want them to carry it in their bag on a plane? Do you want them to reread it five times over? Is this something that they have as a memoir and they, you know, they enjoy looking at it daily? Is this something that when they finish it, they give it to a friend? But like, like if you're not thinking about its purpose in the world, you might miss its chance to create a ripple. And if it doesn't ripple, you don't hit the virality of a book that is worth talking about. You just sell to your first circle. People tell you you wrote a good book. You did write a good book. A good book exists, but it hits a period. It's a full stop. Yeah. And it doesn't keep running because you can only make it go to one level. You need something that can get to the second or the third level and then perpetually go. Um, and that means people are going to read it. And so how do you do that? If, if the bottleneck is first getting people to read the book and then secondly, getting people to share the book, how do you, you said, focus your marketing on kind of on, on those two things. How, it, like anything that you do to get people who purchase it to read it or to get people who read it to, to intentionally share it with others? Well, I, I mean, I have a copy here. One of the things I do to get people to read it is I make it pretty easy to read. Right? Is there's a reward in the fact that it doesn't take long to finish a page and it's easy to get to the next one and it's easy to get to the next one. And before I know it, I read a book. I read a whole book today. You realize like how much of an Instagrammable moment that is for somebody is like, I've finished a book today. Like I've already done my book of the month and it's the first of the month. Like, like that is something that, that increases readability. The other thing is to think about like why to go paperback first. Well, it's easy to travel with. When do people read business and personal development books most? It's in like a semi-dead time. It's like an accompaniment to being able to do something else you're already doing. So put it in a format that might support that. If this was, you know, four times the size and carried weight, you'd be like, I'll leave that at home. I'll read that when I'm back. And then you don't. So those things all lead towards readability. Other That's things great. that lead towards readability is, is friction. And and what I mean by that is from the title to the content that exists through the book, it has to create almost that, that teaser element of what a soap opera does of saying, I can't wait till the next episode. 
I can't wait till the next season. Look at the title of my book. It's called exactly what to say. I'm certain if this book was called Magic Words, it would have sold a fraction of the quantity that it has gone on to sell. You can't write a book that tells me exactly what to say. You certainly can't write a short book that tells me exactly what to say. I mean, how possibly could this tell me exactly what to say? Um, let me read it and find out. So there's curiosity lacing in to the book from the title, which increases readership. Yeah. Whereas what many people want to do is they want to give away the secret on the cover. Yeah. So those things impact it. Um, when it comes to marketing, here's a simple way in which I think, and a mistake that many people make for book launch. At book launch, what people do is they encourage thousands of people to buy the book, and then they encourage those people to tell people that they should buy the book. They never talk about their results or experience of reading the book. So all of this effort and energy gets created, everybody gets excited, and nobody knows what for. Whereas somebody shares something they learned from a book, now I might want to read it. That's great. And I think this is a miss in launch. Like the most important part of a book launch is not launch day. It's two weeks after launch day when you loop back around to the people that have consumed the book and get them to share the thing that the book has taught them they didn't know previously. Like that's the day that matters. Launch yeah. day as well, of course. And what yeah. happens is the support you get in your early days gets wasted. Mm. Because everybody did what you asked. I bought the book. I took the photo. I shared the selfie. Right, All of that was done. And I'm not saying it doesn't need to happen, but if, it, if you don't get the second bounce... Yeah. Of what did the book teach me and what could it teach you too? Then the noise is the wrong kind of noise. Yeah. That's great. I want to build on this. I want to kind of go through a lightning round. I've got a, a few different questions I want to ask. Just some, some related, some unrelated. Um, magic words and sales skills. I mean, I know this is like a big topic, big question, but when you talk about magic words, how does that apply to authors and sales skills? And because it's, it's kind of what you said earlier, it's like you, I know sales and marketing and the publisher knows publishing. And so for authors who don't know sales and marketing as well, and let's obviously, we just talked about the marketing focus on the sales side of things, like what are some of those magic words or how can they, how can authors use sales skills to sell more books? Okay. Um, first things first, salespeople born or made? Born or made, what do you think? My, my take? Mm -hmm. I, I think made. Well, what does a three-year-old do when they want something? <laughs> they sell the fair and on getting it. Right? They ask for the things they want in their life. They are relentless yeah. about those asks, and they learn ways to be able to ask for things in ways that get them what they need. And success in sales is merely asking in the right way. That's all it really is, is, is asking in the right way. And the biggest reasons that most people fail to get the success that they want in life is because they just don't ask. Your success is in direct correlation to the quantity of quality asks that you make in your life. If you want to have success with a book launch, you're going to have to ask a lot of people to do a lot of things for you. So you need to have those skills that are in place. Here's what happens. A classic thing that happens to every author is you launch a book and people say like anything I can do to help. And you say, yeah, yeah. Like whatever you think of, I'm super grateful. Like anything you think you could do to help, like, like I, I, that'd be brilliant. Thanks. And the poor person on the other end is like, I wanted to help, but I don't know how to help. So they don't help. Or they paste a you know, selfie, hit me in the book. 
buy my friend's book. Go on, please. And nothing happens because they don't have the ability to be able to ask. What if you could just ask a simple question? Hey, who's somebody you know that I don't know? That might have an interest in, in learning how to be a better manager or might have an interest in. Would you send them a copy of the book for me? You see how that one simple ask might start a conversation that could create more of an impact than the person just lamely promoting it or writing a review that says, my best friend wrote a book and he's really nice and we went to school together and <laughs> five stars. Um, like, like, it needs to be real and you've got to, you've got to force that conversation. And, and it is important to get your language right, like to get on podcasts, to be able to create actions of what somebody's going to do on it is to lace in story. Like my book has 26 sequences of magic words. I've shared none of them. But I'm pretty sure anybody listening in right now has a belief and understanding that I might be able to help them with some language that could help them shift some more books, but I haven't told them anything that's in the book. What do you think some people might be thinking right now? Need to buy the book. I should probably grab that book. Yeah. So if you want to have success as an author, understand that being an author is not the hard part. Being a marketer of what you authored is the real work. For sure. Having the ability to sell people on helping you to market your book is the hard part. Yeah. Hey, let's switch gears. This is, this is great, Phil. Let's talk, because we never talked about this on the podcast, so I want to dive into this real quick and then uh, open loop. Uh, I want to come back to the Phil M. Jones and the specificity behind that. <laughs> but first, uh, Audible Originals. This is something you've done well. I was on your website. You've got a whole kind of sales page specific to the Audible original. You've done multiple of them. Uh, mm -hmm. Why? Well, why and how? Like, how? First off, how did you uh, negotiate one of those deals or, or line up one of the Audible original deals? And and why is that something that you've prioritized for your book? Um, okay, so so I'm a big believer in the fact that success leaves clues. And your platform is created in a personal brand space by getting your pegs in a board, right? Is, is the more little pegs you have in a board of achievements that you've done, the more that your resume continually evolves with key assets, the more that you can continually scale a personal brand is, you know, you don't want to be, I wrote a great book in 1996 and then live off that forever. You've got to keep doing things. And, you know, I was looking at people who were a few steps ahead of me in the race. And one of the guys that I stumbled across um, is a guy who now become a friend, a guy called Neil Pasrika. And, and Neil had secured an Audible original. I thought that was interesting. I was super passionate about the fact that um, audio is a great medium for the consumption of information because unlike video, you didn't necessarily have to give it your full attention. It could accompany... I also was an author on a lot of content around the spoken word. I'm like, dang, this would make sense to be able to do this. And I thought, how do I orchestrate something that I have no right to be able to do and make it real? So what I did is I got on a plane, I flew to Toronto, and I took Neil for dinner, and I asked him how he went about getting his Audible original. 
I shared with him three loose ideas of something that could be. He said, you need to speak to my buddy, the editor at Audible Originals that was greenlighting new productions. I said, that'd be cool. He said, where, I said, where's he based? He said, he's based in New York city. I said, cool. I'm in New York city. We can probably make that work. Um, so I got a drink with this guy. I pitched an idea. But I waited my time to pitch the idea. I waited the time to pitch my idea when exactly what to say was in the top 20 of all Audible books. I waited my time to pitch the guy that when Audible was there. And what I had was a window of opportunity that was a version of, well, whatever you, ever you like. But actually, it wasn't. I stumbled across another problem. Audible had just commissioned a deal with a theater in New York City where they were doing these live Audible originals and they hadn't really got mm. their head around what their programming was going to be. So I thought of all the things that I could pitch them, if I could pitch them something that was recorded live that was actually delivered in a theater, I helped fix a problem that they had, which they got a theater and they don't know what to do with it. So I gave them an idea that brought all these things together and they were like, we should do that. And I got to live out a lifelong dream where I performed off-Broadway to a live audience <laughs> that now exists forever. Right? I did a one-man yeah. show for eight hours for a live audience that became my audible original, how to persuade and get paid. But what I really wanted there was I didn't want an online course. I just didn't want an online course. I also didn't want to deliver my one day sales training workshop that had built my business that I was delivering to 12 people at a time, 20 people at a time selling tickets and grew towards that, that was still getting inquiries for. So I thought, what if I could bottle it in an audio program that would support everything else? Guess what? Um, how to persuade and pay, get paid. My Audible original is probably one of my proudest professional achievements to date. And it's a marketing tactic to sell more copies of exactly what to say. And has it done that? Yeah. And it's, it's been a commercial success in its own right. Yeah. Because now what you do is you get two plus two equals five. Yeah. Look what happens is I get an interview about exactly what to say. We talk about how to persuade and get paid. Yeah. If you listen to how to persuade and get paid, you learn about exactly what to say. Yeah. And the economics, do people, do people purchase how to persuade and get paid? Do they get that for free on, on, on Audible? Can you walk through how that works? And then how do you get paid? Do you get paid just on the book sales? Was it an upfront? Do you get how to, based on how to persuade and get paid was a, was a lump sum upfront, like a traditional publishing deal with yep. bonuses based at thresholds. So when Got we it. hit thresholds, there's another lump. When we hit a threshold, there's another lump. Um, but you know, decent number, decent number Got at the it. front and, and we're about to hit the first milestone. Nice. And it, and it drives and sales on the other side. Yeah. There's a kudos thing that's attached to it too. And, and you know, I, I have the, the, you know, the poster from the, from the, the theater on my wall over here. I'm like, that is fun. Yeah. It's fun. That's um, awesome. and, and, and it, you know, go on. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, why have you, why have you focused so much on Audible sales? Because this this Audible original has worked so well. You said the most listened to audiobook, I I think in 2018. Like, why has that that been such a priority for you? I was picking up 90 grand checks a quarter. <laughs> and and so your were your Audible? I mean, were your Audible royalties higher than any other surprise. format? Yeah, yeah. And what else happened is Audible had a period of time where they were um, paying a thing called a bounty where they had bounties that were running that if somebody joined audible as a result of your book you picked up like a 25 dollar or a 50 dollar spiff on that on that one transaction 
And corporations around the world were telling every one of their employees that you need to listen to exactly what to say. So I was getting these by the hundred of people signing up to Audible through my book. Uh, also breaking yeah. random algorithms too at their end where because of how short it was, I mean, people were using a credit on Audible to buy a book that's 74 minutes long that you could buy for $5.99. Which is heaven. Like for anybody who understands yeah. the Audible model, that's yeah. like paying three times over the price for the book to use a credit. Um, but also they were then listening to it on average 2.6 times. Mm. How many books on Audible do you think have got a 2.6 average listen? Most have a 0 0.6 listen if they're doing well. Yeah. That's great. So, so, and then that feeds the algorithm on, on like Audible's end, right? Is that then they put it in front of more people. The other thing that then drives book sales is conflicting and contrasting reviews. Mm. I have more one-star reviews than most authors I know. Mm. I also have more five-star reviews than most authors I know. Um, but the one-star reviews create friction again. If you hear about a book and you look at it and it's full of five-star reviews, then, then where's the catch? If the one-star reviews are shown and it's got a 4.3 average, I'm going to make my own mind up. How do I yeah. make my own mind up? i got to read it. Buy the book. That's great. It's the it's the Perry Marshall eighty twenty sales and marketing right. It's it's the uh, the the three star review book that has no three star reviews. I mean, obviously yours is much higher than that, but just the yeah. the same the same concept right of the contrast is what creates yeah. conflict, and the conflict is what creates movement to purchase and, and to read. And something in my language here that's interesting. You mentioned buy the book. I mentioned read the book. And I think many people focus on getting people to buy the book and it's the wrong finish line. The finish line should always be read the book. If the finish line is buy the book, expect to succeed for a bit and then fail and fail fast. If you move your success metric to read the book, then you might run a longer distance. That's great. I love that. Hey, we're, we're running right up at time here, Phil. Final question I got to ask. Well, actually two, two final questions. Why Phil M. Jones? And not Phil Jones. I know you said you've been very intentional about that. Um, when I started building my personal brand, philjones.com didn't exist. And Phil Jones was a soccer player that is just going through a transfer to Manchester United that was some of the hottest press on the, on the planet. Um, so I knew I couldn't win any Google attention, any name recognition attention, um, as Phil Jones, yet as Phil M. Jones, I'm in open water. So I could own every asset there. I could build out a brand that would be known. People start to conjure up. What could the M stand for? The truth is it is just my middle initial. Yet people <laughs> think that there is more to it than just that. But what it's allowed me to be able to do is, um, is not fully intentionally build a stronger personal brand because there's just another added and what else as an identifier. And, and, it, and it's been remarkably helpful. Like even 
in my speeches, when I'm customizing content for a client, the M in my logo is typically my standard orange. What we now do is we change the M in my logo to the corporate Pantone color of whoever I'm speaking for. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. So last, just a little, last, you know, another little piece of fun. Last couple of questions for you, Phil. Knowing what you know now, what would you say to Phil M. Jones uh, from, from years ago, pre-book one or all the other Phil M. Jones out there that are thinking about writing and publishing their first book? Um, I'm not big on, on, on mistakes and wishing things were different. What would I say, though, is, is remember that you can write more than one book. And perhaps that might empower you to put less into your first one, but less but better. If you're wondering what should go into your first book, it's the best thing you've got. The best thing you've got and nothing else. But give yourself permission that this is going to go well and you can write more. So that, that would be my, my first thing. Um, what else's advice is be careful who you listen to advice from. <laughs> if they haven't done it. Yes. If they haven't got a proven track record, if they don't know what they're talking about for real, be careful what you're listening to. Because there's an army of people out there that will tell you that, you know, you can't make money from a book. There's an army of people out there that will tell you that they can jump you to a bestseller in no time and that this is going to make you a bisquillionaire and they've never done it. They might have some metrics and some screenshots to prove it, but they've never really done it. Um, and know that the author community and the people that are attached to the author community that, that give a damn, they're some of the most giving people on the planet. So don't be afraid to ask them for proper advice. And I mean, their experience, see what you can learn from them. And I think you might be surprised at just how much they'll give you for nothing. Because this is an industry where every one of your competitors is also your colleague. And I think everybody who's in this would rather help their colleagues, knowing that actually, people don't only buy one book. So although they might be your competitors, they can also be your companions and people can buy both. And that's a unique industry to win in. And I think you know, embrace that industry. And the only way that you get to be able to access that industry is to become an author, which yeah. means you've got to write something, you've got to publish it. And then you get the access to being, Hey, I'm an author. You're an author too. How do we get to learn from each other? For sure. That's so great. Phil, this has been amazing, man. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, where can people go uh, to find out more about you, um, to, to, to check out your stuff and to buy your books? Well, well, firstly, if you go to Google and, and you remember I'm Phil M. Jones as opposed to just Phil Jones, you, you, you should find the right one. Um, and um, yeah, come find the website. It's probably the best place to start, philmjones.com. You can spin out from there to any of the social networks. If you are active on social, Instagram and LinkedIn is where you find me most active. So if there's something I've shared today that's insightful that you want to learn more about, if you want to chat about stuff, DM me on, on Insta. If you just want to connect and, and, and follow along to what I might be sharing or what might be of interest to you, then, then ping me a connection request on LinkedIn and, and we can maybe cross paths there. Awesome. Bill, thanks so much, man. Pleasure, pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of the Self-Publishing School Podcast. I know there's so many places that you could be spending your time. There's other podcasts that you could be listening to, YouTube channels that you could be watching. Uh, so thank you so much. It means the world. Now, I want you to do three things right now if you found this episode. All right, number one, I don't know if you know this, but we've got a YouTube channel. It's a companion channel to this podcast. All the video versions of the episode are on the YouTube channel. So number one, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Number two, if you're listening to this podcast wherever, whether this is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, number two, I want you to subscribe to this podcast right now so you don't miss a future episode. Uh, And then number three, this is probably the most important, uh, leave a review on the podcast. All right, reviews are super important in helping the podcast get discovered by other people. Uh, So number three, leave a review on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'll see you in the next episode. If you're on the fence about scheduling a publishing consultation call with my team, maybe you're not quite ready uh, for that, I've got some free training that I think will be really helpful for you. All right, all you have to do is go to register to sign up. Go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. When you do, you're also going to get a free digital copy of my new book, Published. And on that training, you're going to learn the next step, so how to implement with your book. So how to write, how to publish, how to launch successfully. So go to register right now at selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. I'll see you there.